So is that. It's going to yell at me. All right, if you have your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 5. I think I'll join you too. You know, before I went electronic, it was faster. I could just turn a page. I can't do that anymore. I'm at its mercy. Whenever it decides it wants to turn on. That ever happened to you guys? No? It's called dead air time. I got to do something for dead air time. It's, it's, it's no bueno. It's horrible. Please pardon the technical difficulties. chapter 5. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. We're going to read all the way through. Um, as we work our way through it, we probably won't cover that much today. We'll see. But I want you to keep the context like we've been talking about. So James 5 verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you. And will eat your flesh like fire. For you have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. So be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, But let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is any anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be be healed. For the prayer of a righteous person is great power as it is working. Elijah was a man, uh, was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months. It did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and the heavens gave rain and the earth bore fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, as we come to this section uh, in James chapter 5 on patience and prayer, God, we pray that you would open our eyes to see, God, that we would allow the truth of your word to be that final arbiter in our life. 
God, that we would hold fast to what your word declares. The things that your word is laying out for us, Lord, that we might glorify you in the lives that we live. And God, that we might have an answer to the one who asks us a reason for the hope that is within us. God, we pray that you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come now, I've divided chapter 5 into three parts. We did the first part last week. So we're going to probably look at the middle section this morning. And the idea of being patient, this exhortation to patience. Now sometimes we ask ourselves, why? Why does he have to give us an exhortation on patience? Well, we know, don't we? We don't like to be patient. In fact, how many times have we or someone else told us, whatever you do, don't pray for patience. You pray for patience, and that's one prayer the Lord is going to give you. We're all pessimistic. Don't tell me all you guys, I'm the only pessimist in the crowd. We all have a little pessimism running in us, right? And so we say, well, he'll answer that prayer because that means hard times are coming. And it's hard times, difficulty, that leads us to endurance or patience. So he has this exhortation. This exhortation, right after calling uh, uh, repentance for those Who are the rich? Come now, you rich, weep and wail for the miseries that are about to come upon you. This this idea of really looking to the Lord, self-examination and considering, man, God, is this me? Is this where I'm at? Well, if it is, God, then, then I repent. And I hope, God, we can understand one of the incredible things that I think we can learn about the life of Daniel is that Daniel was, as far as we know in Scripture, not guilty of any horrendous sin like so many other great heroes in the Bible. If I say David, you guys, what's the first thing you think about? Maybe man after God's own heart, maybe, but otherwise it's Bathsheba, right? So we, we, we are known more by our failures than our successes. But when I say Daniel, you don't have a Bathsheba to go to. And Daniel, as he served Nebuchadnezzar, and as God used him in a mighty way, as God took him at the age of probably early teens, 16 years old, made him a eunuch, and placed him in the, in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sure that wasn't his thoughts for his life. I'm sure he was, had different plans. But he becomes God's man for the time. And the nation of Israel is in a horrific place. The nation of Israel is in rebellion against God. And and they find themselves uh, uh, over and over again under this word of judgment from the prophets. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all the same time. They're out there saying, hey, what's going on? What's going on? There's there's things that are coming. There's things that are happening. What's, what's going on with you people? You need to get your heart right with the Lord. But over and over and over again, they ignored it. So they go to captivity. Many of us on our refrigerators, we put this, this verse, but it's lost all context on our refrigerator. It says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. We need to recognize when that was given by Jeremiah to the people, their families were destroyed. Men were in one line, women were in another line, children were in another line. There's no guarantee that any of those families were ever reunited again. They were entering into a life of slavery to a nation that that spoke a language they couldn't even understand. And as they're marching away, Jeremiah says, this is God's word to you. This is not for your destruction. This is for patience and endurance. This is something that you need in your life, and I want you to know that I'm with you to give you the strength that you need as you go. In fact, later on, verse 13, 14, 15 of the same chapter, he calls the people, hey, you'll find me when you look for me, when you search for me with your whole heart. So go plant, build, have a life. It wasn't designed to be the end for them. But you could understand how they might look at that, couldn't you? Last Sunday night, you could understand how a whole group of people, thinking that they're just going to go out and have fun, would wonder what in the world is going on, what's happening as a, as a fallen man rains terror down on a crowd. And you thought to think about the utter randomness of who gets hit and who don't. 
I mean, it just, for us, seems so random, yet God's Word is the same. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good and not of evil. God's desire is that we would have hope and a reason for the hope. But here's how we struggle, guys. When we look at that, we struggle in the same way. That Really, we struggle the same way as Congress struggles. Because every time somebody gets shot, you know, one side of Congress starts yelling, get, get all the guns away from men. And the other side of Congress starts hollering, nope, you, you can't touch my guns. And all the while, we're arguing about stuff that doesn't matter. That has nothing to do with nothing. It's the brokenness in a heart of man that causes man to do those things. It's a brokenness in man, and that brokenness there is an answer for. Back to Daniel. When Daniel saw the brokenness of his nation, he prayed. And God healed the land. Now I just want you to think about that for a minute. Daniel wasn't guilty. Daniel wasn't an idolater. Daniel wasn't guilty for all the things that his nation had done. But he repented on behalf of his nation because he believed. See, that's what believers do. Believers repent on behalf of their nation. They ask God to forgive us. They ask God to have mercy on us. They ask God to be compassionate. They cry out in brokenness. And you can read all about it in the book of Daniel. Daniel cried out and wept before God and said, Lord, have, have mercy on us. Forgive us for all these things that we've done as a nation. If we're sitting around waiting for unbelievers to start praying, that's just not going to happen, folks. The scripture said, if my people who are called by my name will, what's the next word? Humble themselves. Looking at the face of God and crying out in repentance. But it's not often what's on our mind. And it's certainly not often what's on the mind of our leadership is they scramble to look in 50 different places for a solution to something man has done since Genesis chapter 3. When we didn't have no guns, all we had was sticks and stones. The heart of man, the Bible says, is desperately wicked. And the cure for the desperately wicked heart of man is a life surrendered to Jesus Christ. And he gives us a new heart, a new character. It doesn't make us perfect. If you've been in church for 10 minutes, you know we're not perfect, don't you? But it gives us what we're looking for. What's that? Hope. Hope that what God has begun in me, He's going to finish. Hope that when I look at this pain, this needless pain and suffering in the world, that I recognize that God said, none of your pain is needless, and I'm working out a far greater weight of glory than you can even comprehend. I also recognize that there's something in the view of God that I don't have, that I can't see. But I make the choice to trust in the Lord with all my heart. Lean not in my own understanding. In all my ways acknowledge Him and He will make my path straight. He'll show me the way to walk. And as we consider this exhortation to patience, I pray that we'll consider Daniel and the call to Daniel. Who had all these great things that he did, but the one thing that really sets Daniel apart for me is he's the one who prayed. Remember in Ezekiel, God said, I'm looking for someone who would build a wall and funnel the people down into a gap and then stand in the gap for the people. But I found no one. Well, Daniel foots that bill. Daniel stands in the gap for the people. He prays an attitude of repentance upon them. And so I want to see this heart of Patience that we see exemplified in Daniel's life. He's a patient young man whose life didn't end up all the way he thought it was going to, right? He probably had a, a different plan, but God had something better. Oh, maybe it doesn't look better to us. Maybe we can't comprehend that, but that's what the Lord says. So when we look at verse 7, guys, look at it. When you look at verse 7 in James chapter 5, I just want you to see how many times... He gives us this call to patience. Look what it says. 
Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. That may be near or far. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the field, being patient about it. Until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Multiple times he declares to us, be patient. And then multiple times he tells us why. Because Jesus is coming soon. Be patient. Jesus is coming soon. Be patient. Jesus is coming soon. Now the point of that is this concept of imminence. The concept of imminence means that we're always ready to see the Lord every day. That we live our lives loving His appearing. Why is that important? Because it changes the way I live my life today. Right? Are you with me? If I'm, if I'm thinking I'm going, if I know Kathy's coming, Kathy's in Utah right now. So my house looks like a bomb went off in it. And I, I have no a, intention of doing anything about that. Why? Because I know she's not coming home today. She's coming home sometime Monday. So, Monday, I'll give attention to picking up all the trash off the floor. You wouldn't believe it. Looks like chaos. The only person that might know is Shannon. Shannon know what my house looked like if Kathy's not there. Looks literally like the guy who was eating all these meals had no idea there's a sink or trash. <laughs> Sometimes that's how we live our lives out for the Lord. Rather than being patient, longing for His return, we say, He's not coming. He's not coming. He's not coming. So I'm going to do whatever I want. He's not coming. I'm going to drink. He's not coming. I'm going to party. He's not coming. I got time. He's not coming. And we let that be the measure of our life all the way to the end of our days. And the Lord is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Be patient, looking expectantly like a bride waiting for her groom. I love doing weddings. Every wedding I've ever done, I stand up front with the groom and it's always the same way. When a groom sees a bride come down the aisle, that's when you take a picture. I don't know. What, you go stand by a tree and do all these other goofy pictures, but the real is when that happens right there. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Because all of a sudden, that whole moment is real. It's like, it's like, there she is. And she's in the back going, there he is. And there's this excitement, and that's the way God wants us to live our lives. That's why He describes it that way. That we would have this patient endurance. And He says we want to have that patient endurance like the farmer, right? The farmer who is, who is, waits for the precious fruit of the earth. No, every farmer knows I throw seed on the ground and fruit's not tomorrow. Right? And if the other thing I learned in Buell from farmers, I don't get paid every week. Or every other week. Or until harvest comes in, right? So this idea that, man, i got to wait, and I've got to nurture, and I've got to care. And it's not a waiting that I'm just sitting back with my feet up watching, you know, Jerry Springer on TV, and, and wondering, oh, you know, someday that's... No, everybody who knows, everybody who's farmed knows you're con- consistently working. There's something that's being done so that you can produce that crop. So you're patiently waiting, but the word wait is like the idea of a waiter who's waiting on someone for dinner. You're taking care of the things that you need to take care of as you look for the, the receiving of that which is promised. In Psalm 27, 14, it says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your hearts take courage. Wait for the Lord. That's what This is exactly what James is talking about with us right now. Wait for the Lord. Now look, I know every, a lot of things in our world are sideways. A lot of problems, a lot of struggles, you know, that we, that we, we try to struggle with in our own thinking of trying to figure out how these things work. But I recognize this one truth. Jesus said when He comes, He's going to make it all right. Man is incapable of governing justly apart from the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's impossible. Sooner or later, power does what? It corrupts. Does it? Most people or some people or what? Everybody, no? 
Everybody, we see that. We want to wait. We want to wait eagerly for the bearing of the fruit. So two reasons he calls us to this exhortation of patience. The first one, the nature of the harvest. We, we plant now, we sow later. Right? We put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and we live our lives looking for His return every day. Longing to see Him. Longing to know Him. And recognizing that that, if I know Kathy's coming home every day, what I do? Made the bed, vacuum the floor, pick up all the trash. It's all ready. If I know Jesus, live my life like Jesus is coming today, that's going to be the same way in my life. And then he wants us to understand this. The second reason for the exhortation is the nearness of the Lord. The nearness of the Lord. Look what he says. He is at hand. Listen to how many times he says it. Until the coming of the Lord. He says in verse 7. In verse 8 he says, Be patient establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9 he says, Do not grumble against one another so that you be judged. Why? Because the judge is standing at the door. Three times he's laid out this idea that the nearness of the Lord is come. So we want to do two things. What's that? Establish your heart. Set your heart firm. That your heart has that foundation of Jesus Christ. And secondly, don't grumble. Set your heart. Don't grumble. Those two things are the things He calls us to in being prepared for the return of the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 3.13, it says this, So that He may establish your heart, blameless in holiness, before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all His saints. We want to have that heart stabilized, set in Christ. Is that, is that the way our hearts are? If it's not, thank God you have time. Fix it. Repent. Set your heart on Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2.17 says, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. How is it that we establish our hearts? Well, we establish our hearts through every good work and every word. Every word. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Right? We want to hold fast to God's word. We want to hold fast to that which God has... Has God called us to do good work? That's what the Bible declares, doesn't it? That He has ordained good works for us to walk in. He's laid out for us a plan and a purpose for our life. A way that we live out your life. Is your heart established on Jesus Christ? Because our heart can be established on a lot of good things, right? Our heart can be established on our job. Our heart can be established on our family. Our heart can be established on, you know, you put, you fill in the blank. And all of those things are good things. But none of those things are the Lord. He says, establish your heart on the Lord. Establish it. Let it be set in Him. Establish your hearts. Hold fast to Jesus Christ. It says in Hebrews 13.9, Do not be led away by diverse or strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So what else is it that we establish our heart on? Grace. The grace of God. The grace of God that has overlooked my brokenness, my unworthiness, And still gives to me, offers to me, that same empowerment that he offered to Daniel. Me and Daniel maybe don't have a lot of things in common. I've had a relatively good life. Things have turned out the way I thought they would for the most part in my life. But, But when I look at it, I can recognize that even in my brokenness, God's grace is sufficient for me. It gives me the things that I need so that I can establish my heart on Him. Focused on Him. He has a crown of rejoicing for all those who have loved His appearing. We're looking for Him. The second thing, and considering the nearness of the Lord, right? And this understanding we need patience. The nearness of the Lord. He says, don't grumble. Well, there's a good one. Anybody grumble this week? How about this morning? See, we have at least five honest people in church today. So it says, don't grumble, meaning don't speak evil of one another, man. It's The idea is, Jesus Christ is the judge. When He comes, He's going to judge the living and the dead. Correct? 
Absolutely right. Now, we're going to see later on in James, does that mean we don't confront a brother in sin? No, that's that's actually what you're supposed to do. That's not judging. That's not. If I take the Word of God and I stand next to you and I say, you know, the Word of God says that you're supposed to be married, not living together. And the person says to me, doesn't the Bible say judge not? Yeah, that's not judging. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. You guys tracking with me? The Bible says, thou shalt not steal. If I see someone stealing and I say, hey man, you shouldn't steal. And they say, man, don't judge me. I'm not judging you, I'm telling you. This is what the Bible says. Everybody tracking? That's not judging. Judging is saying, man, you are good for nothing. You are so lame, I would give up on you. It's over. Man, every time I trust you with something, you screw it up. Now you want to say, hey, brother, you're not supposed to judge. I should repent. You're right. That's judging. Everybody tracking? Yeah, when the Bible gives out clear definition of sin, every husband who's exhorted to love his wife, and somebody says, man, brother, you need to love your wife. Oh, don't judge me. That's not judging. I'm telling you what God's Word says and how our lives should be applied to that. But when He says, do not grumble, do not speak evil about each other. Don't start shooting at one another across the sanctuary. James 4.11, listen to what it said. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. Now if you remember, we talked about that law. What's the law? Love the Lord your God is the first, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus said they're going to know you're my disciples by the way you love each other, not by all the bad things you can say about each other. Right? So this is supposed to be the attitude within the church. That's the law. You are not a doer of the law, what Jesus asked us to do, but you have become a judge. You're switching places with God. Remember we talked about it. God's a judge. We're in the docks. We're making God stand in the docks, and we're deciding we're the judge. And that's not how that's supposed to work. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. So who are you to judge your neighbor? It's not my job to condemn anyone. It is absolutely my job to lay out what the Word of God says for somebody's life. That's not judging. I know that's a big thing everybody likes to harp on, but that's not what the Bible says when it talks about judgment. The word's crino. It means to condemn, put down, speak evil of. It's loving to say to somebody, man, this sin and that's going to separate you from God. You need to repent of that. That's loving. We get, we get that backwards. We think it's loving never to discipline a child. Don't ever discipline a child. Because if you discipline a child, that's not loving. But you know what the Word of God says. The father who loves his child disciplines them promptly. My wife wrote that on every paddle in the house. Every wooden spoon. <laughs> when they got older, it had to get bigger. Because that's love. That's what love does. Love is a parent teaching their child how to be a man or woman. That's, that's loving. Love is reaching out to your neighbor and when they're in sin and being willing to do the uncomfortable thing and say, man, this, this is not okay with God. And because I love you, I want to let you know. That's loving. The opposite of that is what most people say. Well, don't judge me. Just let me go to hell. That can't be the, the alternative, can it? Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 7. This is the one everybody likes to quote. Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you not be judged. Right? Don't condemn. Don't speak evil of. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured unto you. So everybody understands that, right? If you're a condemning person who sees everyone as somehow beneath you or worse than you, and that's how you live out your life, the Bible says, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. It's the same measure of condemnation that you give out is going to come back to you. But listen to what he said. Jesus said, why do you focus? Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and not notice a log in your own? So before I can go... and Has anybody ever done this? Have you ever walked up to somebody and said, man... I got a speck in my eye. Will you pick it out for me? Have you ever done that? Man, 
I, 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 I have had, I got a piece of metal in my eye one time. And I told Kathy that. Babe, get a spoon, dig this thing out. <laughs> she couldn't, she couldn't see it. So I go to a doctor, you know, and they put you in one of them fancy chairs that hold your face. Because if they don't, you would not sit there with your face there. My head is strapped into this contraption. And he squirted some kind of solution. It felt so good, I was good then. I was like, oh, you can let me go now, doc. But he was not going to let me go. And, that, and I couldn't move because his belt's around my head. And then he comes at you with a needle. Now, I, I suppose I could close my eye. But that don't seem like that's going to help at all, right? So, so all I remember is this needle coming in my eye. And go, oh my gosh. And what are you going to do? I'm going to not look at it. How do you not look at it? The needle's in your eye. <laughs> so he stuck the needle in my eye. And then the part that almost makes you sick is it's, he goes into the lens and he wiggles it around. So your, your lens in your eye goes... Well, like all the old cartoons when somebody was getting seasick, that's what it looks like. When you really see it, you know, boof. So, so he digs it out of my eye. I'm thankful when the doc does that, he's got on these crazy contraption glasses. Have you seen them? So, so he can see the, every little vein. He could actually see the piece of metal, the metal fragment that was in my eye. And so he was able to pick it out. I don't want some guy with Oakley's. And, uh, you know, who, I don't want them digging in my eye. And so this is what Jesus says. Why are you guys doing that to each other? Why is that, why is that how you address one another's problems, right? If, I said if there's sin, then I need to, before I go to a brother and, and discuss sin with them, I better make sure that I can see clearly. Is that, and can we understand that from this? So before you go, you don't go haphazardly. You don't go just off the cuff. What do you do? You go making sure I can see clearly. I don't have a log in my eye. I don't have something that's ruining my view. It says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able. First make sure that you see clearly before addressing somebody else. Can we be okay with that? So that's what Jesus is talking about. Hey, here's how you're supposed to deal with one another. Here's how you're supposed to be able to deal with your problems. Make sure you get the log out of your own eye first. Why? Because ultimately, who's the judge and who's the servant? I'm the servant and God's the judge, not you. God's going to judge me, right? Every We're going to see in a moment, every idle word that I spoke, I'm going to be judged by. Anybody looking forward to that? Every idle word is, but God's the judge, not somebody else. Why? Because who can see better than Him? Who knows better than Him? Who knows my heart better than Him? Who's able to do that better than He is? Nobody. So we leave that job to Him, shall we? We need patience. Why? Because the Lord is at the door. His coming is nigh. And that's how we're supposed to live our lives. His coming is nigh. Looking forward to Him. Establishing our heart in Christ. And then He gives us an illustration of this, guys. Look at the illustration. Verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. So he's saying, look, you, you want to look at an example, look at the prophets. Because trust me, God has not called you to do any of the crazy things that he called the prophets to do. And you should say, thank you, Jesus. Yeah? You go out every day for three years in your underwear. Lay down outside on one side. After several hours, flip over to the other side. Then go back in your house. Do that every day for three years. Yeah, nobody's signing up for that, are they? But God's prophets were steadfast and faithful to do whatever God asked them to do. Whatever thing that God laid on their hearts, they were willing to go. And they suffered for it, right? They suffered for it. Everybody looked at them and said, that's weird. What a weirdo. What a strange guy. Do you know, how many know, that Ezekiel was struck mute in chapter 3 and for the next several years was only able to speak if God gave him something to say? All the way through the death of his wife. All the way, 
he had a hard road. What about Jeremiah? Jeremiah over and over and over again, going out to talk to people, telling them, man, guys, your sin is separating you from God. Repent and let's go. He's right over here. We can just go right now. We can all choose to go over there. And they would say, no, 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 no. Guys, if you say no, the enemy's going to come and a bunch of you are going to die. Well, we think you're crazy. And we're saying no. So then the enemy comes and a bunch of them die. And they come to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, what do we do to get right with the Lord? Oh, I'm so glad you're asking. You need to repent of your sins. The Lord's right over here. Come on, we can go and be where God is. No, we're not going to do that. But if you don't do it, the enemy's going to come again and a bunch of you are going to die. Well, we're not going to do it. We're, 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 not, we're not willing to submit in that way. So the enemy comes and a bunch of them die again. Three times. Three times. Then you have left just a couple of handfuls of guys. And Jeremiah has offered a deal by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar says, hey man, Jeremiah, why don't you come? That's, see, that's where, the, that's where God was. He was in Babylon. <gasps> yeah. He said, told the people, that's where you're going. You're going to go for 70 years. That's where I'm at. Come on. He says, no, I can't go. I got to stay with the people. I got to stay with them. I got to be the word of God for them. So this little group of people, they look around and say, well, what do you guys think we ought to do? Let's ask Jeremiah. Jeremiah, what should we do? Oh, I'm so glad you guys asked. We need to repent, get our lives right, and go where God is. You know, we're not going to do that. We're going to go to Egypt. Guys, if you go to Egypt, every one of you is going to die. Now, we're going to Egypt. Then somebody said, Jeremiah, where are you going? I'm going to Egypt with them. And Jeremiah died in Egypt alongside the people who wouldn't listen to him. But he was faithful. He established the Lord in his heart. And he was looking for, looking for that blessed hope. He kept his eyes focused on the things that God had called him to. And there were times he wanted to quit. Anybody ever feel like that? Jeremiah said, I quit. In fact, one day he declared, I quit. I'm done. Nobody ever listens, God. I'm not telling them no more. They don't hear me. I'm not going to talk anymore. And so God didn't say nothing to him. God just waits. You ever have God do that with you when you're having your little thing? God just waits. And like, I don't know how long it was. Let's call it 10 minutes. The next verse, Jeremiah says, I couldn't be quiet. The word of the Lord burned in my soul like fire. And I had to tell him. Why? Because Jeremiah loved them. He loved them. He didn't want to see him die. But if he didn't tell them, their blood was on his hands, right? So he told them. He just told them the truth. Hey, God can see. If you go to Egypt, it's not going to be good. The heart of men... Jeremiah was faithful to die with the people that God sent him to. This is the example he's saying. We consider those blessed. Blessed. Listen to what the Word of God says. In Hebrews 11, 32-38. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and the caves of this earth. Scripture goes on to say, These didn't see the fulfillment of the promise, but lived their life looking for it. Didn't see it, didn't attain, but they lived their life looking for that fulfillment. This is the example that, that, that the Scripture is talking about. He goes on in James 5 verse 11, he says, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You guys all seen him, right? And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And we look at the example of Job. Job suffered, right? Holy cow! 
Yeah, Job suffered. Job went through it. What are we looking for from Job? We're looking for steadfastness. So when all this chaos broke out in his life, Job said, you know what, that's it, God. I've followed you all this time and and everything's been good, but now, obviously, I don't know what's going on, but this is bad, I'm out. That what Job did? God, I quit. I you can't you can't. In fact, Job, guys, just so you know, Job asked this question: Why? 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 When God showed up, you know what he answered? Not that question. When God showed up, he said, "Job, where were you when I made all this?" God asked him a question. Job did the best thing he'd done from the beginning of the book. You know what it was? Scripture says he held his tongue. Which, uh, to be honest, don't think is a problem when you're standing before God Almighty. Right? We all say, oh, I'm going to ask him. We'll see. <laughs> I'm not sure that'll happen. We'll see. But what was the steadfastness of Job? Guys, even when he didn't understand, even when life was horrific, he got down on that mount of garbage, p- put ass on his head, mourned and wept, and lifted his eyes to heaven from where his hope comes from. He didn't understand why, but he didn't quit. He didn't understand why, but he didn't give up. He was not afraid to ask the questions. There's nothing wrong with asking the questions. Why? Because the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He says, I know what you're made of, guys. Right? Do you know that? It's in the Psalms. Says, I know what you're made of. You're just dust. We've talked about this before. When's the last time you expected a lot out of a dirt clod? You walk outside and see a dirt clod and go, Next time I'm out here, dirt clod, I expect this to be all picked up. Yeah, you don't do that, do you? The Lord is compassionate and merciful. He knows our frame. He knows how we're made. He knows what's going on in us. And He never, ever held any of that stuff against Job. And all Job's friends came and tried to comfort him with all their religiosity. But at the end of the day, God said to his friends, Man, you guys better hope Job is willing to pray for you. Because if Job don't pray for you, all this stuff that happened to him is coming to you next. You think they saw Job different then? How quick sometimes we are to think we know what's going on in somebody's life. But what was the deal about Job? He kept his eyes focused on heaven. He established his heart. And not only, guys, did he look for the promise, like the prophets we talked about earlier, they were looking for the promise, but they didn't see it. They died looking. Everybody tracking? Job saw it. Not only did Job see God, not only did Job have that experience with the Lord, but everything he lost, he got back. Double. Everything he lost, he got back. Now usually when we talk about this, everybody says, what about his kids? He didn't get double back at kids. You can't get double for kids. Right? Maybe you can. Who says that Job's kids were lost? We do? Isn't that what we say when somebody dies, we lost them? Did you really lose them? Do you know where they're at? If you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you live your life looking for Him, then chances are you probably had an opportunity to share with them and you should know where they're at. They're not lost. Were Job's kids lost? The Bible doesn't tell us they're lost. The Bible says Job got double back. He got the exact same number of children back that he lost. So I'd say he still got double. The first seven aren't lost. They're just gone for now. Job will see him. Job will see him. We look at life temporally. God looks at life eternally. We look at life on a line. God sees life in a totally different way. In 2 Timothy 2.11-13 it says this. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. But if we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. Hey, the, 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 
What's that mean? That means that the shorted, the shortcoming won't be with God. Right? And we need to, we need to recognize that. We want to keep our eyes on Him no matter what. Job saw the fulfillment of the promise. The prophets didn't. This is the example that we're given. So when we look at it and we say, therefore consider those blessed who remained steadfast, who had patience, who had endurance, who made it all the way to the end. And then all of a sudden in verse 12, it feels like you got this little twist. But I don't think it is. It's, we have this, we have this concept, this reminder of our speech. It says, but above all, so more important, here, here's a very important asterisk, right? Asterisk by this verse. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, <coughs> either by heaven or earth or by other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, wow, that seems like a totally different subject. But hopefully I can help you understand how it's not. When, when he talks about don't swear, a lot of times when we talk about not swearing, that's the imperative or the command, stop swearing. We, we want to know what's he mean. And I think he means what the scripture tells in Exodus 27. In Exodus 27 it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And we ask ourselves oftentimes, what does that mean? What does that look like? And I think it looks radically different than what we tend to think. We tend to think about words that people say. But I think it's more about an attitude that people, some people might have. What do I mean? Well, speaking things for God that God hasn't said in His name. That's probably one of the primary ways in the church that we abuse the name of God. If I am doing any kind of meeting or counseling with you, I'll give you the magic words to get whatever you want. God told me. Well, you and I are done talking. If God told you, I reckon you better do whatever God said. But let me say this. You better not be just saying that. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't apply it to a vain or useless purpose. Don't say God said if he didn't say We want to recognize that. Jeremiah 14, 14, the Lord said to me, These prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination and deceit uh, of their own minds. What's he saying? He's saying, man, the Lord said this. This is not something new. But a lot of times we can be guilty because we're not patient. We're tired of waiting for the Lord. We're tired of waiting for God to take care of something. So we just say, the Lord told me to do something. That way we're doing something, right? Well, this is what God told me to do. But do you really mean that's what God told you to do? Because God doesn't have nothing good to say about those guys in Jeremiah. Who said, thus saith the Lord when God hadn't spoken. The Bible says we should listen twice as much as we talk. So we should probably put that into practice, right? Listen twice as much. If, if you're waiting and you're thinking, oh, well, I, I need to do something. Well, good. Do work like the farmer, waiting for his fruit. Waiting for the harvest. Do the work that needs to be done. But don't presume what, what God has not said. What God has not done. Jackie, then how can I ever know what God has said? Here's an easy one. Open up the Bible. It's there. Look at that. I don't have to wonder, did God say this? Absolutely, God said this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, though I did not send them, who say, sword and famine will not come upon this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. Saying, man, these guys, these guys are liars. And God's judgment is going to fall on them. And so the, the, James says, guys, just don't take oaths. Don't say something that, I swear to God I'm going to do this. Or swear to God I'm going to do that. Don't say God told me this unless you heard it from God. Which usually makes you an Old Testament prophet. Because Ezekiel, before he ever gave a prophecy, the word of God came to him. That doesn't mean it entered into his mind. 
How do I know that? Because the scripture says, the word of God came to him and he touched me. Well, that's a physical representation, isn't it? That's where Ezekiel's getting his stuff. It's where Jeremiah's getting his stuff. That's where they're getting it. If we want to say God has said, we should probably hold fast to what he has told us in his word. In his word. Focus on that. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't swear either by heaven or by earth. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus' own words, guys. Wrapping up. Matthew 5.33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. You shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's a throne of God, or the earth, for it's his footstool, <coughs> or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Just say the truth. Whatever that is. Whatever that is. Jesus came to the conclusion that, hey, this is not good. You have surrendered this concept of truth. We want to lay that aside. We want to hold fast to that which is true. We don't want to, we don't want to run off on one side or another. Be patient. Endure. Look for the return of God. Establish your hearts in Him. Keep them in Him, looking and longing for the return of our Lord, living our lives that way. And if we do that, these warnings that James has been giving us in chapter 1, they'll be good. You'll be let out with joy. You'll have the wisdom of Jesus Christ working and moving in your life. Why? Matthew twelve thirty six. Jesus said, I tell you on the day of judgment, People will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your word you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The Bible's full of scary verses. That's definitely not the scariest, but it's one. Every idle word you said. James said, so remember, if you're mature, if you're growing up in the Lord, what's, what's one of the first signs of that? The ability to control what? Your tongue. Don't swear by God. Don't say, thus saith the Lord, if the Lord hadn't said. If he has, that's, a, that's why I say, if you say that in a meeting, we're good. God told you, right on. Let's go. Well, I'll help. I'm not going to fight against what the Lord has said. Now, on a few occasions, it's obviously not true. But that's not... That's not Always the case. And I do believe that God can instruct and teach and show today. But there's never a time where God's revelation today supersedes His Word. His Word is the final arbiter and that is that which we hold on to. So as we look at this final section of James, guys, is a call. A call to patience and prayer. The first part of that, patience. <clears throat> we want to have patient endurance. Fight the good fight. Stay in it. Look at the examples of the prophets. Look at the examples of Job. Lift your eyes up to the heavens. From where does my help come from? My help comes from you, maker of heaven and earth. Man, we keep our eyes focused on the prize. And before long, you're going to cross the finish line and hear the phrase, Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.